So welcome to the second episode of our International Women's Day podcasts. If you haven't already listened to the first one, freeze, go no further, head back onto our site on whatever platform you're listening to us on and take a listen to the first one. We have some great guests there and it will set you up perfectly for this one. we've got the CEO of one of the best kept secrets in London property management because of its work for private clients. Helix recently, however, hit the headlines in a big way, having been acquired by one of the largest privately held real estate fund managers in the world, Heinz. Although she is incredibly busy at the moment, Amy Saw has very kindly agreed to join us to give us her insight on the best bits of the industry. Hello, Amy. Hello, Kat. Hi, thanks for that lovely introduction. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us. No problem at all. No problem at all. So what is it that makes property, well, the place you want to be? Well, to me, I had a, I had a few answers, actually, not just one. And I hope that's OK. Otherwise Absolutely. Very short. Um, but I imagine that it's probably echoed amongst the industry. My main reason for sort of staying as long as I have is due to the variety of every day um, in the business. Um, I think 15 years on, I'm still learning new things every day. Um, and I think that makes it really exciting. Uh, no two days are the same, particularly in the role that I do in property management. I think it's really evolved and recent, probably in the last five years, really, it's actually become quite a glamorous part of the industry, which it certainly wasn't day one when I joined. <laughs> <laughs> Have you have you got any any good stories of most or least glamorous? <laughs> well, I think everybody thinks it's all about cleaning the toilets and ordering the the loo rolls, which it, it probably was in the early days. But I think it's really evolved, and now the whole focus of real estate has really changed to the occupier, and certainly in the large multi-let offices that we manage, that focus has really shifted. And we're seeing that more and more since COVID and people returning to the office. But our roles are much more of a a sort of communicator, facilitator and building those relationships with occupiers and making the office be a really exciting place for them to come to. Um, So I think that that's quite interesting in that whether it be sort of ESG initiatives or how we can do placemaking and events within offices um, to encourage people back in. That's a really big part of what we're now doing. I find placemaking really a fascinating part of the property industry. And I love the fact that you brought it up. Uh, Do you think this is something that's recently come to the fore? I feel like everyone's talking about it now. Do you think that it's something that we've sort of just realised is so important? I think it's always been happening to a degree. And actually, I think we have always been very close to our occupiers and understanding what they want from buildings. But I think the way people use buildings has changed more recently. Um, So if people are only coming in two or three days a week, they want to socialise and use those days to catch up with people. And I think within buildings, within common parts, you know, we're really seeing it now in areas like Canary Wharf, which were very much offices for people to go and work in. The way that people are refurbishing and redeveloping the common parts of those buildings is to make it a lot more accessible for people 
people to have informal catch-ups within receptions, whereas before it was all sort of marble straight in and up to offices. There's now a little bit more of that lingering and an informal coffee, perhaps, and Nespresso machines going in. And whilst that's not large-scale placemaking as such, I think it's a really important change in what people are doing. There's a couple of estates that we manage, which are sort of three or four different buildings under different ownerships. And people are expecting activities to be organised, which is completely understandable because at lunchtime they want to go out and have a food offering. They don't just want to go to prep five days a week anymore. You know, if they're in on a Thursday, they they expect us to be organising things, which which is quite exciting and being able to start engaging with the occupiers again on their return and design things that suits their needs um, is a really sort of important part, I think, of getting people back into the offices. This might be a bit of a sneaky question, but you've mentioned like events and buildings and that people are looking for them more. What's your favourite one you've done or maybe one that you're thinking about or one that's on the horizon? If it's top secret. No, there's definitely a favourite that we've done historically that makes everybody smile. This is uh, puppy therapy. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is lovely. And they they bring in a a litter of puppies and it's supposed to be very good for well-being and mental health. Um, So you can use sort of vacant areas within buildings and allow occupiers to book in a little session to have a a cuddle with a puppy. Um, I think that's been one of our best received ones we've done. I can, we've got, Emily and I were both at Durham and we've both got personal experience of the, the puppy therapy up there. Um, where honestly it was more competitive than getting tickets to any other event you had to be you had to be ready to go when the sign up opened because otherwise there was no chance of cuddling a Labrador yeah well I think we were I was hearing in the office the other day that there we've even got puppy passports now for people returning who if we're putting dog policies into buildings um, a real you know change in what we do day to day and how you manage how that works and how many dogs you have in the building at any one time and you know looking at risks associated and and cleaning and all of that I think that just shows doesn't it how far property management has moved on in you know the sort of 15 years that I've been in the industry I love that putting the puppies into property management that's a tagline (laughs) I can get behind and Amy you mentioned you had a couple of a couple of reasons what what's your next one um, I think it's the, the social, the relationships piece as well. Um, and again, that is probably similar in most of the roles in the industry, I think. Um, but in comparison to a lot of other sectors, I think, you know, banking and, and legal, I, I think our the people you meet on a daily basis, you really do get a variety. I still meet lots of our occupiers, our service providers, obviously our clients, And it's very interesting. And I find that every day you're meeting new people, building new networks. And then there's also the the sort of social aspect of that as well, which which I really enjoy. That was my favourite reason for property that I said for an industry that's centred around non-living things. It's so personable. And the yeah, the relationships you build with people you work with in whatever area of the property industry feels quite unique. I had to caveat that with I'm quite new to the industry, but my immediate reaction was, as you just said, but a lot more eloquently than I put it, I think. I love that we've got from what six months to 20 years, did you say, Amy? 15 years. Lost count, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's nice to see that that continues on the way up. 
Yeah, and I think added to that, where you say it's the buildings themselves, it's also the fact that it's not a 100% desk-based. You are out and about visiting buildings and and they're all very different, um, learning new things. I'm always learning about sort of M&E and, and how those things are changing. So every day you go to site, you'll learn something new about how that building operates. And particularly now we're so close to the sustainability aspect, how it works, why it works like that, and whether it can be made more efficient. Um, And I think at Helix, we've always been great at trying to get down to that granular detail of understanding a building and implementing changes to make it work better. Um, Because even buildings that were commissioned only 18 months, two years ago, there's still huge improvements that can be sought from the buildings. Great. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing what you love about the industry. And I love that what I like has the potential to keep going for another 15 <laughs> years. That's great news for me. So thank you to Amy Thor from Helix. A rising star of property research, our next guest has been quoted in everything from the Financial Times to the Grocer, and she only joined the industry two years ago. We're almost as pleased to have her on the podcast as we are to have her on our very own team. It's Remit consultant, Laura Andrews. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? Hi, Emily. Good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you for coming. And you're here today to tell us a bit about, over the last few years, what has made you love property? So um, it's all right. I'll first just say why I got into it. I oh, am yeah. really nosy. Um, I love looking through people's, not in a in a strange way, looking through people's windows as you walk down the road, sort of Christmas time, the Christmas decorations that they've got up, that sort of thing. I uh, love a look on Rightmove and how people have configured their houses, the design, that kind of thing. I, I love it. So for me, it's about the people and how they use the space. It's not just the the bricks and the mortar, but how they use it and why people keep returning to places. So I'm specifically thinking of sort of destination locations and what makes people stay. So things like an estate or something, if they put up sort of a a light installation, you know, something fun and interactive, and that's why people come and spend their day there, or different retail displays, that kind of thing. What makes people want to come to places, enjoy the space, and hopefully spend their money there, that kind of thing. So sort of tapping into target audiences what makes people tick why do they like the space and in my job it's the people that I get to meet as well so we're in a great position where um, I meet lots of people that sit on boards um, and they're decision makers and for me it's and I I really value learning from their example so um, the way they articulate themselves their thought process into how they make those decisions is really valuable to me and I can't think of another role really where where I would get that exposure at this early stage in my career. So that's what I really value. And so the the people really is is why I like it. I love that that stemmed from you liking to look at people's Christmas trees and in people's (laughs) windows. I also love that. I'm really glad that you admitted to that because I never know whether it's okay to admit to enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I I I love seeing how people live. And again, I I constantly look at on Rightmove and and things like you. I, I love a floor plan love a floor plan and and you can you can have houses that have the exact same floor plan and then you when you look at the pictures people have configured it in in completely different ways they've got different styles and tastes and and that's what I really like I've got to got to ask you Laura if you love a floor plan how did you feel when Matterport brought out their software where you can pretend to walk around the house I really enjoy it I really enjoy it I, I do that quite a lot and you think hmm if this is a house I were living in 
and, and, and how you move around the space. I really enjoy that. Yeah, where are you going to dump your keys? Where's your like work bag going to be like hidden away at the end of the day? I love yeah, that. There's a virtual tour button or anything to that effect. And then you uh, walk into a room virtually and you think, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Um, so that's fun. What's your number one, I would not do that from your experience of stalking some <laughs> virtual tours? Ooh, I don't wish to offend anyone, but it's obscenely bright colours in kitchens. Really not a fan of that. Seen some rather volatile looking tiles and colours that they just clash. And I think, oh, I wouldn't have a very calm, relaxing time making mm. dinner. That does, that, does that transfer to sort of 80s bathrooms as well? Ooh, sort of aubergine bathroom. bath. Yeah, carpeted bathroom. That's a bit crazy. Aside from judging people's houses, Laura. Yes, sorry. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to bring you back to, because obviously you do so much work with Remark, which is all about rent collections and service charge and has really, I mean, you've been our, our star of the pandemic, really, analysing all of that data. And I just wonder if that's something that also appeals. No, that definitely appeals. And I think, and again, that's again, looking at trends. So, for example, we've looked at the moratorium, which is, in, in a nutshell, um, you, you can't evict your tenants for non-payment of rents. And that's, again, looking at the trends, you know, who the people that aren't paying, are they really not paying because they can't or are they taking advantage of it? And then it's kind of tapping into the psyche of these companies and that kind of thing. So that's definitely part of the of the wider picture rather than just judging people's kitchens. So basically, you're in it for the sort of the secrets, the things that you're not supposed to know, but you can find out. Yes. Yeah. The reading between <laughs> the lines and what, what also what make, makes people tick. It, it, it's all about understanding why people do the things they do. Brilliant. Thank you very, very much, Laura, um, for joining us. That's Laura Andrews, one of our consultants at Remit. Thank you for having me. So we're really lucky to be joined by our next guest, who is a thought leader in industrial logistics, who's passionate about its place within our towns and cities and its coexistence with other uses. A director at Savills in the industrial and logistics team with over 20 years experience in the industry, it's Bridget Outram. Thanks, Bridget, for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here and thank you for inviting me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And so what is it about property for you? Why do you love it? Well, it's a long time ago when I made the decision to to become a, a surveyor. I think I wanted, when I was a young girl, I wanted to have an interesting job that paid well, you know, and that was my criteria. And I think I was um, coming from a working class background. My father built roads for a living. My mother was a waitress. You know, I, was, I, I, I sort of understood sort of property through my father's work, in, I suppose, on the construction side. So, uh, and I think I've always been very practically minded. So my, my interest in property started from looking at the, product, the, the physical side of it. And I went on to do a degree in urban estate management. And that was a vocational degree, as they're called in those days. I don't know, you know whether they still are, but it was um, at the Polytechnic of Central London, as was. And I really did think even doing that degree that I would be sort of heading towards more of a building surveying or sort of construction side of the of the profession. And, and really, I suppose, when I graduated in 1991, there were very few jobs in the sector. And so I took the first door that opened to me, and that was at the Valuation Office Agency. I might have been offered a job at Savills, but I'm not sure they were paying graduates at the time. I think I, I needed to get paid for the work I was doing. I wasn't from the sort of background where it could be sustained by somebody else. You know, I had to earn a wage. 
So I went through the first door that opened to me and, and you know, it's been a long and winding road and I've enjoyed every single minute of it. And I found myself more involved on the, um, I suppose, the, the valuation and investment side of property as opposed to the construction side. So I didn't expect to be here when I started out, really. Um, but there are so many options, so many different, huge, um, there's, a, there's such a variety of disciplines within the property sector itself that it's, um, it's a wide open canvas when you're young. And the, the thing to do is follow the opportunities that arise. And then as you become more experienced, you know, um, obviously, you know, go down the direction where you're most interested. And, and here I am today working in the logistics sector. And, and I've, I've loved every minute of my journey. Such a nice story that, I mean, yeah, you've got that. I mean, I appreciate the high speed through your career. I think it's such a nice story to really understand why you started. And obviously you've achieved so much. Are there any standout moments? What are things that you're proud of that you've been able to do in or around your career over the last couple of decades? So I suppose I'm not, I've been a surveyor now for, for almost 30 years and um, actually more than 30 years when I think about it. And what I enjoy most about my career today is that I, I like bringing on younger people. So I, I, I'll often mentor, you know, anyone actually who asks me, you know, for, for help. You know, I always try and help the students, the graduates in our team, any student um, that, that calls me, I tend to be as helpful as I can, you know, given the time constraints, you know, we'll try and give work experience to kids. So I, I like nurturing and bringing on sort of the young people because I, I think back to how I was helped when I was younger and I think you know you have to pass it on so I, I was guided by certain people in my career and I can think of them you know who, who they were and, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful to the guidance that I had and and you know I, it's a good thing to to, to pass on I really enjoy that aspect I'm in a position now where I can do that and, and I absolutely love it. And I'm interested that you said about mentoring younger people do you think there is a drive for more younger people to be brought into property I know we have a reputation of being a industry of a certain type of person do you think there is a shift or do you think there's something we could positively do to bring more people into the industry well there's a massive diversity drive now there's there are, there's no shortage of young people wanting to work in our industry but I think there is a, is a whole swathe of people out there who, who maybe don't understand our industry and for them, it's not an, an aspiration for when they're young or maybe their families don't aspire to it. You know, there's, um, I, I think the RSCS has got a lot that they can do to improve this. Um, so my background is comprehensive schools. My kids go to comprehensive schools. I, or they did, they're, they're grown up now almost. I spoke once to a geography teacher in their school and he had no idea about our profession. And anybody who enjoys the subject of geography is possibly a good candidate for charter surveyor, you know, the built environment, you know, um, regeneration, all sorts of things they cover in their classes. And what I'd like to see the RSGS do is um, tackle, not the kids, you know, sort of, you can go out and you can give a message to a 15 year old and they might forget it. Um, but if you're lucky, you might hit the spot and inspire them, which is, which is great. But I think the people who really can inspire children are the ones who see them every day, and that's their parents and their teachers. So I think we need to be targeting geography departments in school and talking to the teachers, not the kids. And I'd like to see a poster in every geography department about charter surveying as a career and in every school. That, that's not a difficult thing to achieve, I think. And that's just setting out a message that with, with geography, you can have this amazing career. And, and, and I'm, I'm astonished at the amount of people in that sector who don't really understand it. So I'd, I'd be an advocate of doing that and seeing that change. And, and with that, we'll, have, we'll be inspiring a lot of children who would never have thought about it as a sector. The other issue our profession has is that we're not seen in many of the, and hardly any, of the Russell Group universities. 
So um, in my kids' school, where you had aspirational sixth formers who wanted to go to universities, so when they're looking, they might not have even known what degree they wanted to do, but they were, they're flicking through prospectuses and they're not seeing our profession at all. It's invisible to them. In the Russell Group, you can do accountancy, you can do law, you can do medicine, you can do engineering, you can do all sorts of professions, but ours is, is hidden away from that. We, we want high-caliber people in our sector, and, um, and that's, that's what we have to do to make ourselves, to present ourselves in front of those kids who wouldn't normally consider us. And so they're, they're two things, posters in geography departments and more of a presence in Russell Group universities, and both of those are down to the RICS, I think, to, to push forward. I think that's a, a really positive take on actual action that we can take to increase the diversity and, and increase the enthusiasm for the industry. Um, I just wanted to come back because I, you mentioned your children. I just wanted to ask, how have you found balancing having a family with working in an industry, which is famously quite traditional and um, I think has a bit of a reputation for not being particularly flexible? Well, see, none of that's been my experience. You know, um, as a woman in surveying, I've never felt that my sex has, has been any problem or any, any obstacle to me whatsoever in my career. For never ever felt that in my 30 years. So, so what, however we've got that reputation, I don't know. I mean, it, it is male dominated. I like working with men. You know, I'm very happy to. What I would say about the flexibility. I had my first child when I was 31 and I worked for a small firm called Rogers Chapman and I was career driven and I you know, wanted to go to the top and all the rest of it. And having the baby, I still felt like that after my first one until I gave it a go. So working full time with the baby at home was pretty hard work. But then um, when I got pregnant for the second time with my second son, um, after him, I went down to four days a week. And at the time I'd started doing agency work and it was just about the era when mobile phones were coming in. So technology helped me. I was, a, the, I was the first person in the firm to go down to four days a week as an agent. And my director at the time was wondering whether it could actually work. Um, but I just made it work because I wanted it to work. And he could see the benefit of being able to hang on to me. His choice was either lose me because I was going to go off and be a stay-at-home mum or, or keep me for four days a week. So I was able to negotiate those four days. And um, it wasn't difficult. He wanted to help, which is good. So I've been blessed with working with people who have allowed my flexibility. Um, and I, I've worked, I worked part-time for about 16 years as a chartered surveyor and I, my diary because you're in charge of your own professional workload you're therefore in control of your diary more so I've worked from home and I've used mobile technology for way before the pandemic you know um, recently at Savills I received an email asking me what days I'd like to be working in the office and I looked at it and thought gosh I wish I received that 20 years ago <laughs> you know um, so that uh, it's a profession which allows a huge amount of flexibility because you're in control of your own workload. Obviously, you have to fit into meetings with other people. And I would always try and, you know, maneuver those so that they were in and hours that suited me. And my hours changed as my children got older. So I worked four days for a while. And then when they were all at school, then I worked five days, but shorter days. The whole thing evolved, you know, at some summers I took extended leave, unpaid leave, so I could have longer times off um, time off with my kids in the summer holidays. And I was allowed to do all of that because partly because of the, the good people who I worked with and the, the people in my direct team, you know, were, I don't know whether they were happy for me to do it, but they certainly, you know, allowed me to do it. And I'm grateful to my profession, that, um, which has allowed me to, to be the mother that I have been to my children, because ultimately they're, they're, they're what I'm most proud of and everything that I've done. And, and having a career which has allowed me to be a mum as well as have a job, which has been interesting. You know, I, I think I'm truly blessed, really. 
you've kind of got what you wanted there, that interesting job that's enabled you to live the life you wanted to lead. Yeah, I, I think my I think my sort of career progression suffers a bit, but you know when when you've got three young children and you're you know you've you've got professional responsibility and you know you've got you're you're looking after your family. You know, I wasn't really interested in climbing the sort of corporate ladder. I was I was I was interested in maintaining the status quo, hanging on to to what I'd achieved and what I'd got. And so I, I think I treaded water career wise for a few years, but you no, know, that was fine with me. You know, I, I was I was happy to do that. Yeah. But I've seen other women who I've worked with who have carried on rising up you know they've been perhaps more driven than me and you know and I admire them and but again they've been in the same profession as me and they've been able to carry on doing that and you know they're they're amazing and just one last question very briefly what is the most exciting thing about industrial logistics crikey that's that's a difficult one to- <laughs> <laughs> um the most exciting thing, I, I, I suppose, I, I love the energy that's in the business. At the moment, we're riding the tide, you know, it's, it's absolutely huge. And I suppose industrial logistics, I'll say this about it, that, you know, the industrial and logistics sector is the, the commercial property sector, which supports our modern lifestyles. From sitting on your sofa watching Netflix, you know, th- those, those films are being recorded in a warehouse somewhere near you. You know, the film industry is massive around London and they're taking industrial space. You know, when you're looking at your photos on your phone, um, all that that's that storage that you know that the cloud is in a, in a data center also somewhere near you that's the sector of the industrial property market all the parcels you receive and that's obvious that's all coming through warehouses that so many aspects of our modern lives are supported by the industrial logistics sector that it's it makes it one of the most diverse and exciting sectors to work in i would advocate it at, at, at any time to anyone that it's one of the most interesting sectors to be in gone are the days of its grubby dirty reputation but even that was interesting. The most interesting buildings I go to are the old factories. And there aren't really many of those left around, but they are so interesting. I like, I like, I like smelling the diesel, you know, that's... that's <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Bridget Outram, Director at Savills. Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Avid listeners of Recast, or possibly more usually Radio 4, will recognise this next guest. Having started her career as a police constable, she now finds herself as the chief executive of the British Property Federation and is an all-round wonderful representative for the property industry. So welcome back, Melanie Leach. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us once again. Great to be here. Thank you. From that arc of your career, from police to chief exec of BPF, why property? What is it for you about it? I'd love to say I had a burning ambition to work in the property industry throughout my whole career, but that wouldn't be true, as you can probably guess from the fact that I started out as a police officer. But I guess for me, what's important is to be making a difference in some way. Um, So after I was a police officer in the Met for four years, I went to the civil service, did a range of jobs in the public sector before moving to the Food and Drink Federation and then to the BPF uh, seven years ago now. And in each case, I've been able to, you know, look at a role and say, you know, this is important to be doing this because, and in the case of the BPF, I guess, you know, and and the Food and Drink Federation as well, actually, you know, what's more fundamental to people's lives than the food they eat uh, and the the, the place that they call home or office or leisure, the place where they live, their local community, you know, which is underpinned by the bricks and mortar and the buildings that the industry creates. So 
I think I think that's it for me, really, is, you know, I, I wasn't looking to come into the property sector. Um, you know, the BPS came looking for me, uh, amongst others, you know, but I was lucky enough to get the role. Um, but that was what attracted me to it was actually, you know, I'm doing something working in a, in a sector that makes a real difference to people's lives for, for good. When you're always looking to make a difference, have you ever found at times that that is especially challenging? And if so, kind of in what context? Yeah, I, I, it's it can be challenging in a number of ways and to think about sort of being in the civil service um you know you always want to move really quickly and I'm sure every minister coming into role finds this that I think most civil servants come into role you you want to get on and make a difference um and you find there's all sorts of you know bureaucratic uh, and other barriers in the way that I mean you can't just go from you know a to z you know you've got to go through a whole other processes and a whole other stuff happens that gets in the way and the thing that you think is the most important thing in the world to deliver because that's your portfolio and that's what you've been given yeah guess what there are lots of other people who feel the same and not all of it's going to get done and not all of it's going to get priority so that you know that's frustrating sometimes when you want to just get on and do stuff so that's that's one of the things I'd say and then I guess you know, actually, and this is, uh, we may come on to talk about it, you know, but diversity, you know, trying to embrace diversity of thought or perspectives, uh, you know, it's really difficult. It's really hard work because by definition, you're going to be challenged. You're going to have people who don't think anything like you coming to you and giving you their point of view. And, and that is hard work and it takes time and it's really challenging, but it's so worth doing because you come out of it. I think you come out of it as a richer person. You also come out of it with a, be- with a better outcome. But sometimes you have to stand back and say, it's okay to say, uh, I'm not going to listen anymore. I've heard points of view. I'm now going to make my mind up. And I'm now, you know, not wanting to continue the conversation. And that, that, you know, when you sort of, I think, you know, if people are uncomfortable, a little bit uncomfortable around diversity, and, you know, I've certainly been in that place, you know, you almost overcompensate. You think you have to keep on listening and you have to make sure that everybody's been heard and that everyone, you know, and, and actually sometimes you just have to say enough. You know, we need to move on now. Uh, we've done all that consultation. We've listened a lot. And actually now here's, and this, you know, as, as you become more senior, this becomes the thing you have to do is you have to say, actually, we're now going to draw a line under it. We're not going to carry on talking about this. I'm now going to make my mind up. We're now going to move on in a particular direction. And I'm sorry that it's not the direction that you passionately feel is the right way to go. This is the way we are going to go. I was going to say, do you have any top tips for, sorry, going a bit off piece, but but for making sure that you are considering different perspectives? Because I know, and I went to a girl's school, and when I first came into the property industry, I didn't realise that there was a uh, stereotype that it was male-dominated. And it took me two years to work that out. And it was, I was at an event and I was looking for the loo, and I realised that I could see the sign for the men's loos, but I couldn't see the one for the women's loos. And then I asked someone, and she said, oh yeah, classic property. And I sort of thought, is it? And because I was so used to an environment where everyone was of the same gender, it didn't occur to me that just because it wasn't my gender, it was a bit weird. And I try and take that on board. And and when I'm thinking about my perspective on things, think in what way am I biased and how do I consider other options? I just wonder if you have any top tips for that. Gosh, it sounds like you're the one that should be giving the top tips. (laughs) Because you've learned a lot about it. I don't I think it comes down to having a set of values, doesn't it? I think it's about if you genuinely want to root yourself in a set of values, listen to people, be inclusive, respect other points of view, then that's all, all you can do and try and apply that in every, every situation. I don't think there is a, there's not a blueprint, I don't think. But I think you're right, you know, to stop and challenge yourself 
until hopefully it becomes not exactly second nature, because I don't think it ever does, actually, because that's the whole point of unconscious bias, isn't it? You don't know you're doing it. But I think, you know, as far as possible, at least you you can make it second nature to you to always stop and think, am I just doing this because I've been told what I want to hear? You know, because you also get told what you want to hear. In, in leadership roles you know so. especially when you're as important as you Melanie I'm sure people oh. are falling over themselves that's you'd be surprised Catherine actually not <laughs> I hope my te- I hope none of my team are you know afraid to tell me when I'm being daft or I've got it wrong um, and you have to encourage that culture I think you have to be really you know open with people and say I want you to disagree with me if you think I'm wrong and you can pick up on their body language sometimes if they're not saying it you can kind of look at them with, they're pulling a slight face or they're kind of looking away or whatever and you think okay you've got something you want to say and you're not saying it so you say okay come on you know I can't I can't be right all the time even I can't be right all the time so come on <laughs> tell me if you think I'm wrong because we'll do better you know because if I'm wrong we're going to get into trouble as a business aren't we or we're going to not serve our members the best we can so I think it's create the culture have a set of values that you know you live because if you're genuine people know you're genuine and if you're not people know you're not if you're doing it by the book you know and just ticking the box and going around the room saying anyone got anything to say no right let's move on you know (laughs) then people find you out so that's so that's uh, they're not top tips they're kind of obvious things to say but I do, do believe they're true how do you strike a balance where you can maintain some stability and continuity in your role for all those who work for you or are impacted by your work, but equally be able to factor in what we've just been speaking about, letting people challenge you and let things evolve as necessary? Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because it's a very live debate in the BPF at the moment, um, because we've had quite a lot of, you know, like a lot of businesses as we're sort of coming out of sort of a phase where lockdowns have been a regular feature of our lives and people have tended to stick in their jobs during that period. But as you know, from last summer, really, you start to see a lot more mobility in the job market. So we've got quite a degree of churn in the BPF and that's normal for us um, because we're the kind of organisation where mostly we don't have progression within the organisation. So people are going to come in, do particular roles, grow in those roles, take take themselves as far as they can within the BPF and then move on so but you know instead of doing that in sort of over two years um, in a sort of fairly ongoing way we've kind of got two years of that bottled up that's now unleashed so we've got an unusually high number of vacancies new people coming in with new ideas and some feedback that sort of suggests that people have got into you know we were not being as encouraging of new ideas new thinking more radical ideas as I'd like I'd like to have thought we were so uh, we're at the moment actually you know not led by me but enabled by me you know with a group of youngsters in the organization who really want to say let's do things differently let's think about things differently uh, and I think that's really really exciting actually I mean I feel I feel like I've got a new lease of life out of that because I can see people hungry committed to the organization wanting to change it for the better and just to give you kind of one tiny example of that so uh, last year James one of my bright young uh, stars who supports our BPF Futures Network, he wanted to write about a particular topic and he wanted to do it in a kind of tone of voice, which was not, you know, the kind of BPF, very sort of traditional, very measured way. And uh, we looked at it and, you know, I tweaked one or two things and then took a deep breath and said, yeah, go on, let's do that. Um, And from that, actually, and and that got published and that was really good. What's grown from that is a, hopefully a round table we're going to do with one of the trade media where instead of having a group of people like me giving their forecast for 2022, we're going to have a young professionals from our BPF Futures Network doing it and potentially a regular column alongside the one that I do for the BPF Futures Voice. 
you know, so, and then again, it will be a different tone and style, but it will be just as authentic. And, you know, and I think that's fantastic. So we're, we've got all sorts of sort of ideas buzzing around, which is great because the energy that you get from that and the innovation you get from that, whilst at the same time being rooted in our sort of core business of working with government on policy, uh, trying to advocate on behalf of the industry, you know, me, me popping up on, as you say, on Radio 4, as well as on this wonderful podcast, you know, I think you can blend old and new uh, in quite a dynamic way and particularly when you're a small business so there's only 24 of us actually you know there's there's huge opportunities there to innovate while staying true to yourself. You, on that point you mentioned about advocating for the industry to the government I was reading something recently about the new building safety plans and kind of a lot of the discourse that's been going on about government potentially overstepping their mark in terms of planning regulations. Do you think there is a line between the two? We're talking specifically around the cladding issue and yeah. remediation and all that. Yeah. So I think where you have to start from is it is a scandal that people are living in unsafe conditions or in, you know, or in conditions which are miserable because, you know, cladding has been ripped off their buildings and there's wind whistling through the walls you know, because nothing's been done to remediate that, you know, that is, that is an unacceptable scandal, you know, and I think ministers are right to say, this is not acceptable. And, you know, something needs to be done to, to support those people and to deal with that situation. You know, if I look at our members, you know, I mean, they were really quick to react um, to the situation they found themselves in with their buildings, you know, post Grenfell, you know, they were really quick to deal with cladding on their buildings. And, and, you know, a number of them were quick to say, not only it's not only the assets we own currently, we're going to go back and we're going to look at what we've built and we're going to take responsibility for sorting that out too. And that's exactly right. That's exactly what they should have done. Um, and, you know, no, no responsible building owner, no responsible developer, you know, should be doing anything other than doing everything in their power to take responsibility for the buildings they created and the buildings that they own. The problem is that that's left a rump of buildings where either, you know, there is no longer someone who can take that responsibility or you can't identify them or you may still have bad actors who haven't taken that responsibility. Now, you know, the government has then to figure what it's going to do, figure out what it's going to do about that. Our view is that requiring responsible actors to take total responsibility for the irresponsible parts of the the sector and thereby inhibiting their ability to invest for the future and to deliver the homes that we still so desperately need uh, and the places that we so desperately need you know, in a very crude way, which is kind of what sort of was sort of slapped on the table, if you like, uh, by Michael Gove a few weeks ago, you know, is not necessarily the right way to do it. But there is engagement, there are conversations going on, you know, we will, I hope, get to a sensible way forward which enables everybody to move on in a way that's sensible for the market, for government, and most importantly, you know, deals with those people's homes. It strikes me that I think there's a kind of moral agreement that the polluter pays. Um, and it's not that the government is going against that. I guess it's that it's kind of enforcing it in a slightly more energetic way than people at first expected. Do you reckon? Yeah, I don't, but I don't think it's, I mean, the polluter pays principle has to be right. Mm. I mean, the problem is this is now... And if we can't find a polluter to pay for it, we'll ask the non-polluters to pay for yeah. it or, the, yeah. or we'll ask people who, who have taken already taken responsibility for themselves and sorted themselves out also to sort other people's people out as well. And that's the bit that is is more challenging, I think. I just want to come back and ask you one last question about it's important to be making a difference. You wanted a job where you make a difference and you've done 
Um, but I wanted to ask in, in your time with BPF, what's the difference that you're most proud of or, or the difference that you found most interesting to be involved with? So, and I take no credit for this on behalf of you know my, my current role and the industry. But when I came into uh, the BPF seven years ago, very, very early on, I was, uh, I think it had been accepted before I arrived, I was speaking at a, an event. And during the course of that event, I was asked a, a number of questions. I can't remember specifically what they were, but I do remember that in answering the questions, meaning the people who were living in the buildings, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, you don't hear anyone in the real estate industry talking about customers. <laughs> you know, that's really unusual because of course I come from food and drinks. So I come from fast moving consumer goods where the customer is completely king and it's all about customer service. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, you were telling the story about how odd you found it being in a, you know, in a, a, an environment, you know, dominated by males. You know, I found that really odd. I thought, well, how do you, how do you run a business? How do you have an industry that doesn't think that customers are people? <laughs> you know, that was, that, that to me was really odd. But, you know, what, fast forward seven years, and of course, you know, the best of the industry didn't think like that. You know, there were already people very, very focused on customers, meaning people, meaning, you know, uh, people coming in and out of their buildings. And, but it's, it, it, you know, now that's the topic of the day, isn't it? Alongside net zero, you know, carbon, that, that's the topic of the day is customer service, social impact, thinking about people, you know, not thinking about a building and a return from a building, but thinking about a building that serves people and how it can do that better and how you can operate it better build it better so that's sort of that's the journey that I love seeing in the sector we've got so much further to go on that you know and it needs to uh, and absolutely needs to be at the core of, of how we think about things going forward and I think that will be you know the, the great thing is you can see that becoming a commercial imperative and not just a, an ESG yeah. nice thing to do or you know um, part of it you know it's going to become commercially imperative to think about how your building is going to you know, not only meet sustainability criteria, health criteria, but how it serves the needs of the people who are who are using it. That that ties in really nicely. We've had um, lots of, of really nice um, things said today about how property is about people from whatever side you look at it. So that ties in really nicely. Thank you very much. And thank you, Melanie, for joining us. Thank you. As ever, it's been a pleasure. That was the last of our guests today and what an amazing episode this has been and what a great addition to last week's. I know we've had an excellent time recording them so we hope that you the listeners have enjoyed listening along but it is that time in the podcast now and Kat what is the cliche today? Gosh it does feel like a bit of a tough act for me to follow really um, but I will try. So my my selected cliche ish today is um that property is just bricks and mortar so a bit more of just a common perception of property yes thank you emily not in fact a cliche <laughs> at all um no i i wanted to talk about it though because i think all of our guests today and last week are leaders in their area of the industry with buckets of knowledge on the in- intricacies of real estate And it's really, really interesting then that very few of them actually mentioned anything to do with this in their response to the question of what they love about the industry. From this sample and, of course, my own experiences, I've kind of decided um, that property is so much more than the bare assets and the, the bricks and the buildings. And a lot of the value in whatever sector is gained in having the right people. That's so true. I think that's a great way to look at it. And like you said, our guests both this week and last week have really showed that property is a lot more than 
what might at first meet the eye or what it says on the tin. Oh, another cliche. <laughs> Bringing out the cliches now. <laughs> so just before we say goodbye, I'd like to say a massive thank you to all of our guests, both this week and last. It's been great to hear from some really big names in the industry. And um, thank you very much also, Emily. No, thanks, Kat. I've really enjoyed this month's episode. What about you? Good. Yeah, no, it's been it's been fab. Um, and to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us again. If you would like to keep up to date on what's going on with the Recast team, please, please do be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at recast.pod, where, as I said last time, profiles of our guests will be available. And if you have any suggestions for other episodes or if you'd like to, to feature on an, another episode, please do drop us a message there or you can tweet me at remitcat.com.